0: Today's episode of the Redcoat History Podcast is a quick look at the men who made up the British Army of the Peninsula War, how the regiments were organised and what the key tactics were that they utilised so successfully. Hi guys, if you're new to the show, then this is a place for military history geeks and people who love the history of the British Army. My name is Christian Parkinson and I am a qualified battlefield guide here in South Africa. I'm also the author of three books on British military history. The latest of those is called the Military History Geeks Guide to the Peninsula War Volume 2 and is now available from Amazon and on payhip.com slash redcoathistory. If you want to support the show, then please consider purchasing a copy, it will really help. It's currently on special offer for £1.99, or if you're in the US, $2.99. I wanted to start today's episode by reading from Richard Holmes' excellent book, *Redcoat*. For me, this excerpt really does a great job of introducing the men that Wellington famously called the scum of the earth. He has not shaved this morning and from the look of things he shaved neither yesterday nor the day before. Ginger stubble sprouts from the suntanned face with red-rimmed blue eyes and a mouth whose teeth stand anyhow like a line of newly raised militia. Bushy sideburns ending in a forward sweep just below the ear emerge from a battered black shako fronted with an oval brass plate and topped with a white over-red pom-pom which has seen better days than many of them. His red coat. Waist length in front, with short skirts at the back, is closed by ten pewter buttons, grouped in twos with a broad oblong of white worsted lace framing the buttonholes. Collar and coat front alike are flecked with small burns made by gunpowder. Around his neck, a knotted piece of material which is now unquestionably black, though it might be that it started out much lighter. He stands five foot six inches tall, taller than many of his comrades, and now he himself is a beast of burden. Broad buff leather cross belts meet on his chest with an oval plate at their intersection. Thinner buff straps run down from his shoulders and across his chest and a brown leather strap lies across his right shoulder with the thick canvas belt of a haversack alongside it. We can see even from the front the edges of this black canvas pack and the grey greatcoat strapped on top of it stands well above his shoulders. A black cartridge box hangs at his right hip and bayonet scabbard and round wooden water bottle at his left. His hands have the same worn leather hue and texture as his face and their short fingernails are black edged and his right thumb is thickened with a mighty callus. His left hand hangs loosely by his side while his right thumb and forefinger apart rest slightly on the bright steel barrel of his upright musket. Its 39 inch barrel is tipped with a bayonet, 16 inches of triangular steel, its point level with his shako plate. There is an animal tang about him which even that fine natural deodorant, the pervasive wood smoke, cannot conceal. In part, it stems from the fact that he has worn the same jacket for six months, and it smells powerfully of old sweat laced with bad egg stink of black powder. The muddy odour of the pipe clay which whitens his belts, and the sharper nip of the brick dust which, dampened by water, brings the metalwork of his musket and the brass of his accoutrement to a shine. It must be said though that not much polishing has gone on of late. He cleaned his teeth this morning using the well-chewed end of a green twig as a brush, but these efforts cannot conceal the facts that there were onions in his supper and rum after it." The men who donned the scarlet jacket of the British Army were a fascinating and complicated group of men. Marshal Salt said of them after the Battle of Albuera, There is no beating these British soldiers. They were completely beaten and the day was mine, but they did not know it and would not run. These men who would not run had joined the army for many reasons. Some were old-school patriots keen to fight the French. Others were drunks and criminals with no other options. Many were simply escaping the boredom of life on a farm or in a factory, picked up by unscrupulous recruiting sergeants in the local public house. After taking the King's shilling, the recruit would be whisked before the local magistrate where he would give his name, trade, place and date of birth. He would then swear that he was not already a member of the Army, Navy or Marines. He would formally choose if he wished to serve for seven years without a pension or for life with the promise of a pension once he retired, if his service was good of course. It's also worth noting that a large proportion of Wellington's best soldiers had transferred from the militia. The militia regiments were full-time home service battalions, and their men were often of excellent quality with high standards of drill and discipline. They were induced to transfer to regular regiments with the offer of a large cash bounty, or simply for the honour and glory of serving their country abroad and potentially building a successful career. What about pay? Well, the pay of a private soldier wasn't good, even by the standard of the times. A shilling a day, which is what they earned, was half of that earned by an agricultural labourer and only a quarter of the daily wage paid to a skilled textile worker. To make matters worse, the army also deducted money from the soldiers' pay to cover such things as food and other expenses, leaving them with very little in their pocket. So who led these men? Who were the officers? Well, they had very little in common with their men. There were the occasional real-life Richard Sharp type characters who came up from the ranks, in fact as you may recall I've spoken about them on my YouTube channel before, but it was a very difficult transition and very few made successful careers after gaining a commission. Most army officers had purchased their commissions, essentially buying their way into the army, sometimes at exorbitant prices. This practice limited who could become an officer and meant that the officer's mess was filled with the sons of wealthy businessmen and aristocrats, also those of the clergy. Gaining promotion also depended on how much money you had. This is how Charles Oman puts it in his book on the British Army. Promotion in the British Army at this period was working in the most irregular and spasmodic fashion, there being two separate influences operating in diametrically opposite ways. The one was the purchase system, the other the frequent, but not by any means sufficiently frequent, promotion for merit and good service in the field. The practice at horse guards was that casualties by deaths in action were filled up inside the regiment, without money passing, but that for all other vacancies the purchase system works. When a lieutenant colonelcy, majority or captaincy was vacant, the senior in the next lower rank had a moral right to be offered the vacancy at the regulation price. But there were many cases in which more than the regulation could not be got. The officer retiring handed over the affair to what was called a commission broker and bidding was invited. A poor officer at the head of those of his own rank could not afford to pay the often very heavy price and might see three or four of his juniors buy their way over his head while he vainly waited for a vacancy by death by which he would obtain his step without having to pay cash. I think that explains to you why... Officers, especially those without money, were always so keen for battle and so keen for wars to be fought because it was their only opportunity to to rise up the ranks. So we've heard a little bit about the men, but now I want to look at the infantry regiments themselves and start by explaining how they were organised. The British army of the Napoleonic era was small compared to the French, the Austrian and the Russian. In 1809, for example, the army's entire infantry contingent comprised... 3 regiments of foot guards, 103 regiments of the line, 8 West India regiments, 8 so-called veteran battalions, 10 battalions of the King's German Legion and 10 more various foreign units. Some regiments, including the guards and the 60th Royal Americans, had multiple battalions, but many had only one. The total number of infantrymen at Britain's disposal was therefore less than 200,000 and many of these soldiers were needed for service across Britain's growing empire. In other words, they weren't all available to fight Napoleon, Britain had a lot of other military commitments around the globe. A line infantry battalion comprised ten companies. Eight of these were known as so-called centre companies and two as flank companies. The Grenadier Company, comprising the biggest and most impressive looking men, would take the position of honour on the right of the battalion, so they were the right flank company, while the light company were on the left, which they included the fittest and most intelligent soldiers. Companies were often further subdivided into platoons of 50 men, and them into sections of 25. In theory, at full strength, a battalion would number a 1,000 men and 35 officers, but the reality was that during the peninsula it was very rare for a battalion to muster anywhere near this number. In fact, it was common for a battalion to only be able to field about 500 men. A lieutenant colonel commanded the battalion. On paper, there would also be two majors, 10 captains, one for each company, and approximately 20 subalterns, that's ensigns and lieutenants. As with all armies, non-commissioned officers were the backbone of the regiment. There was one sergeant major in each battalion. This man assisted the adjutant and would be a master of drill in every aspect of military discipline. Below the sergeant major were several staff sergeants with specialised roles, such as paying the men or looking after the battalion's weapons. Each company would normally have two sergeants and three corporals. These men handled the day-to-day running of the companies and much of the administration. A good NCO would be an experienced soldier who could read and write and knew how best to manage and motivate the men under him. Then as now, it was an incredibly important position. And what of tactics? Well, we've mentioned a lot of different tactics during the course of Season 3 on the Peninsula War, but maybe it's time just to take a moment to explain them in a little bit more detail. The British army in the peninsula was a well-oiled fighting machine, highly disciplined, well-drilled and trained to fire their muskets quickly. The thin red line of redcoats defeated the massed columns of the French time and again. But how did they do it? Let me briefly explain the two infantry formations that were most used in the peninsula. First, there was the column formation. The column was the fastest way to manoeuvre troops across a battlefield without losing cohesion. These blocks of men, usually made up of battalions, could keep a tight formation and be thrown quickly into mass attacks. Their weakness was that while the men were in a column, very few of them could fire their musket. Therefore, according to the military doctrine of the time, these columns were meant to rapidly deploy into line formation just before engaging the enemy. This would allow the advancing unit to bring the maximum number of muskets to bear before launching their final charge. But changing from column into line was a complicated business, especially in the face of the enemy, and the French, overconfident after years of victory, often used their columns as battering rams to smash through the enemy, which they hoped they would do using elan and sheer weight of numbers. This tactic had been successful for them across Europe, but against the disciplined redcoats in the Peninsular War, it failed repeatedly. In fact, just go back and look at my episodes on Busaco, Fuentes de Anoro, even Albuera to a degree column very rarely beat British line and what was line I hear you say well the redcoats favoured meeting the French while formed in a two deep line they would stand silently the front rank kneeling with the rear rank standing behind them technically according to the official drill manual at least the British like other European armies were meant to form a three deep line but lack of men forced the British army to improvise and soon the two deep line had become the norm it proved very effective, and there, there seemed little need for a third rank. A classic British tactic under Wellington was to form the line on the reverse slope of a hill, 50 metres from the crest. This protected the men from French artillery and skirmishers. As the French column crested the hill, the Redcoats would open fire, volleys rippling along the line. We must remember that the smooth musket of the time was very inaccurate, hence officers preferred the men to hold their fire until as late as possible. Simple mathematics meant a battalion formed in line could bring more firepower to bear than one formed in a dense column, in which most of the men were hemmed in and impotent. After firing one or two devastating volleys, the British infantry would charge with fixed bayonets and force the French to retreat in disorder. Another important infantry formation of the time is the received Cavalry Square. As we saw at the Battle of Albuera in an earlier episode, an infantry unit caught in the open by enemy cavalry could be quickly outflanked and charged from all sides. The result would be terrible. To avoid this an infantry battalion could form a hollow square with four ranks of men on all four sides. Two ranks would kneel and two would stand. This formed an almost impenetrable wall of bayonets that the attacking horses would not charge. As you may recall from episode 27 of the podcast, the light division, that elite unit, successfully formed multiple squares at the battle of Fuentes de Oñoro and was still able to manoeuvre effectively across the battlefield while under attack. Despite its success against cavalry though, the square could become a death trap for the defenders if the enemy could deploy sufficient artillery and infantry to support the attacking horsemen. So I hope you found that helpful and interesting, guys. I know it's been a long time coming, I probably should have done it earlier in the season, but hopefully it's not too late. Now I'm a bit sad to announce that after nearly two years or so, the Peninsula War is wrapping up for me for my coverage. I still need to do an episode that covers the fighting in the Pyrenees and the south of France in 1813 and 14, and then we're going to wrap it up. Early 2022 will start off with a number of interviews with different authors about different periods of history and then I'm going to start on season four which I think unless something drastically changes is going to be the first Anglo-Boer war which was a war that Britain actually lost. Okay guys until then have a fantastic Christmas and New Year and I'll speak to you soon.